Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. One of the themes in my writing and on this show is that the green movement is not concerned with human life. And if we look at its history, we see a consistent opposition to all forms of practical energy, all forms of of energy that can potentially create energy abundance. Now, on today's show, we're going to have a guest who is not only aware of that history, which I am from having studied it, and it's, it's written about a lot in... The Secret History of Fossil Fuels, which is the first chapter of the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which, by the way, you can get that chapter free online at moralcaseforfossilfuels.com. So this person has not only read about it, but he actually lived it. So this is Dr. James Rust. He was a longtime professor of nuclear engineering, and he lived through both the demonization and, to a certain extent, to a substantial extent, destruction of nuclear power, and then saw the same thing happening with fossil fuels. So I thought it would be interesting to have Dr. Rust on the show to hear some anecdotes about what it was actually like to go through what is really a negative thing, but I think is a thing that is important uh, to know about. So I'm recording this after I've conducted the interview. There's some really good stuff in the interview. Uh, It does go, the organization of the interview isn't, uh, as good as we always have, sometimes these things, you know, th- we go off on a couple of tangents, but I think at the core of it, uh, there's some there's some really good content. So hopefully you enjoy it and let us know what you think, and we'll be with you, and we'll be with Dr. Uh, James Rust on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We are joined now by Dr. Jim Rust, a professor of nuclear engineering and a policy advisor at the Heartland Institute. Jim, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and I admire what you're doing, trying to educate the public about this big mistake we're making on energy policy that's impoverishing this country. Well, yeah, I think I think we're we're succeeding, and I think we succeed on this program. So. It's good to have you here. Now, uh, before the show, you and I were discussing your your background, and you have a really interesting background because you are uh, talking a lot about the fossil fuel industry and the persecution of the fossil fuel industry and fallacies about fossil fuels, and yet your background is in nuclear, and you have lived through the whole attack on nuclear. So let's start out. Tell us how you got started in nuclear and when. Well, okay, I, I have a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering, and I've worked for Exxon, you know, way, way back. And uh, so my history goes back into the 50s or so. And it was just uh, another fraternity brother and I were applying for a Fulbright scholarship, and we had to go to England. Uh, and they had just started a nuclear engineering program back in about 56. Uh, so I put that down as an area of study to, for graduate school. I knew I was going to grad school. And prior to that, I would have gone into chemical engineering for a doctor's. But you know, I did all this work 
in providing a, or preparing a scholarship application for a Fulbright on nuclear engineering. And it's interesting. So I, I started, I didn't get the Fulbright, so I ended up going to MIT. And I started in 1958, September. I was the first class of students officially to enter nuclear engineering at MIT. Uh, North Carolina State University, I think, started a nuclear engineering program about 1956. And so, you know, my education in that area is considerably different from chemical engineering, but still energy-oriented as a field of study. And it, it was exciting, you know, for the kids. We studied like the Dickens during the week, but on Saturday night we'd go out to a bar and sort of commiserate about the whole world, what our future was, and we thought, yeah, we're working on an energy supply that's good for tens of thousands of years, because there's so much abundance that we have of uranium and thorium, which are the nuclear fuels. And so anyway, I, you know, I proceeded on getting a graduate degree and went into teaching, and we started going lickety split nuclear power in the late 60s. Well, immediately we get this group of people who are anti-nuclear power. They were using nuclear proliferation as an excuse for us abandoning our nuclear program. Uh, down in Georgia, where I live, uh, the Georgia Power Company built four nuclear power plants. And they were being hauled in the court all the time. You know, it's the Georgians against nuclear energy and similar type environmental groups. And these people, they're working real fast and hard in the 70s. And they stopped. They, I, I say they succeeded. We never sold another nuclear plant after probably 1978 or, or in this country. And so now these people are out of work being anti that form of energy, and the global warming thing comes up. So I can recognize still the same names of these older people. I'm 79 uh, today, and these people, they're 79 and 80 today, and that's their activity is trying to kill our fossil fuel industry. They killed the nuclear industry. Uh, and uh, so they, they found them a new method of employment. Well, so, so, uh, so going back to the anti-nuclear movement, what was your analysis of it at the time? I mean, what, what did you think was going on? Because you have objectively the safest form of energy ever devised. As you mentioned, it's reliable. It can, you know, we know how to do it for thousands and thousands of years. What did you think, of the, think the motives of the people were? Uh, some people, I think, just have to be against something. They get their kicks out of this. And, uh, you know, power and money are uh, the two motivating factors. And the other one, I think, is some people get, I've called this little fuzzy feeling in their tummy when they think they're saving the world, they even though how wrong they are. And that's why this uh, environmental movement is made up of people who've made terrible mistakes. They're just wrong in what they're doing, and uh, don't realize the consequences. Or, you know, they're going to kill millions of people. Well, so uh, why wouldn't they get? Why wouldn't they get fuzzy feelings from helping people using energy? Well, that's I don't understand. I'm not a psychologist or so, and I tell people I'm just not smart enough to figure out how dumb people can be dumb, or <laughs> what what makes people dumb. Or so, you know, the facts are on our side, on you know, either on the nuclear end, and it certainly is on the use of fossil fuels today. Um, the, at the nuclear end, back in the 70s, their big uh, one was nuclear proliferation. Well, the proliferation's already had taken place. Uh, the horses out of the barn. Uh, you know, China, uh, all these other nations, 
that were our opponents back in those days, how we were making nuclear weapons all and so you know nuclear proliferation was not existent. It's already proliferated. Uh, another worry they kept forth with was that we could not dispose of nuclear waste. Well, that certainly had been you know studied and the ability to properly dispose of what existed back in the 70s. What they needed to do was build what I call a reprocessing plant, take the nuclear fuels that are used up in the nuclear power plants, take out all the good material, which is the uranium that has not been used, and the plutonium that was formed in the operation of the nuclear reactors, and throw away the garbage. Uh, the garbage is what I would call fission products. It's a radioactive materials that probably have no value, and they're going to be radioactive for hundreds of thousands of years. Well, the garbage is real tiny. It's less than 1% of the nuclear waste. 99% is worth billions of dollars. And at 1%, you can put it in a uh, encapsulate in, in some glass material, which is not water-soluble, and put a stainless steel jacket around that and, and bury this underground. Uh, you know, and the uh, well, uh, uh, place out there in, their, in Nevada uh, was a good site. And this is one uh, thing I, too, sort of blame what's going on today. Uh, we elected President Obama and put him in as president in 2009, and he wanted to build infrastructure or so and uh, spend money. He spent you know, about $900 billion, uh, which I think there's nothing left to show for it. But he could have built a reprocessing plant uh, for uh, reprocessing our nuclear waste and then started this on the route to disposing of this material. Right now, today, we have almost 80,000 tons of spent fuel elements on the reactor sites in this nation. We have 99 operating nuclear power plants right now, and all their used fuel is there. And I don't like that. Uh, you know, we had that accident at Fukushima in 2011, and they had their spent fuel on the site, and it just you know created a problem. And we, you know, I think, you know, let's sit for a few years to cool down, and then this should be sent out for reprocessing. So here's something, you know, could create lots of jobs, uh, and increase our, uh, you know, ability to handle nuclear power in the future. And so we've, we've just messed up terrible on this thing. And you know, that's where thinking back, what I see today, compared to what I saw in 1958. We blew it as a nation on that uh, energy source. Why weren't we don't there, need it. Yeah. Why weren't there champion more champions of nuclear power? I've seen old videos where there's some enthusiasm, but why why weren't the engineers and and other people who knew the truth uh, about it? Why weren't they more vocal? Why did the antis win out? Okay, the antis are very militant. Uh, uh, most of them are not real scientists, or so. Uh, the engineers, like myself, uh, I am vocal, and I'm out agitating about this big error. There's very few of me doing this. I don't understand either. I think a lot of the engineers just like to sit at home and watch television or something. They're, <laughs> they're, they're not strong on advocacy. or so. And I, I might be just a, that's just the way engineers are. Uh, you know, engineers are not real social uh, you know, as a group. Or so, and um, why don't you? What happens if you tell them to get off the couch? Well, I'm I'm out of that group now. Uh, you know, I, I just be uh, with the National Society of Professional Engineers and the Georgia Society of Professional Engineers, 
or so. Well, I withdrew from them, you know, 20 years ago. Their dues was too high. And the other thing, they uh, put in a, uh, in order to keep your membership, you had to get what they call a continuing education units. Uh, you know, I think 20 of these CEUs, so it's going to cost me thousands of dollars, so I quit. And, uh, and I don't see any advocacy, though, all that. Uh, National Society of Professional Engineers probably has 100,000 members. And I, I, you know, I, my access to information is reading newspapers and on information on the Internet. And I haven't seen one pip out of the National Society of Professional Engineers on this energy issue. Nothing or so. And they know better. But that's why it's just uh, not making noise. It's a problem you know, with engineers. And another one might be money. Who's the biggest spender in this country? Uncle Sam. You know, he controls a budget, you know, $3.5 billion. I know, I know a lot most of it goes, uh, you know, welfare, stuff like that. But all research funds come out of them. And so a lot of the engineers stay out of this stuff because they're afraid of offending your master, President Obama. You mentioned with the nuclear people, the anti-nuclear people, rather, that you saw the same people being anti-nuclear and then anti-fossil fuels. What, what kinds of people are you talking about there? Well, they're just professional agitators. Uh, I'm trying to think some of the names back. Uh, Amy, Amy Lovins, I don't know if you know that name or not. But, sure. You know, he's a big deal in you know, the anti-nuclear stuff back in the 60s and 70s. And it, it just it, it sort of disappeared because they won. Uh, we sold our last power plant, you know, about 78 or, or, or no, 70, yeah, 78. And finished building them, and so the, uh, now back here in Georgia, where I live now, we we got two nuclear power plants under construction in Georgia, and we got two more over in South Carolina, and that's the only new ones that have been sold uh, since uh, you know the late 70s. So I don't know how many you're talking about, 35. Uh, well, these plants were sold about nine, uh, 2010, or, um, and so there just hadn't been a target uh, for these people. So that's why they retired out of the anti-nuclear business because they won, and they went into the new uh, energy. So, so I, these people are uh, just anti-energy, and I don't think they really have any idea the consequences of their actions. So that's why, uh, you know, I hate to say this, but you know, physicists, a lot of them are part of that movement. Uh, money maybe doesn't mean anything to us. Uh, to me, as I characterize, an engineer is a person who studies physics, but he also puts the dollar sign as part of that. Because you know, if you come up with something that's too expensive, people can't afford, you go to something else they can afford. So, and so these people, I think, with what I call pure science training, just don't think of the economic consequences of their actions. Uh, where engineers uh, do. And I've, I've, actually, I cannot name a single uh, a person, I believe, with an engineering training that is active in the environmental movement. That's an interesting point. I'm trying to think as well, because you get a lot, I mean, certainly you get a lot of people in climate science, and you get a certain number of physicists and geoscientists and uh, yeah, that's good. Well, if any listeners can think of anyone, what what you get occasionally, are, you get economists. So you get certain kinds of economists. Right. So how uh, how would you explain that? I think that? Uh, they maybe uh, you know in this thing, but they have no idea on the physical sciences. Uh, you know, just like uh, you know, carbon dioxide, we know is a greenhouse gas, and 
you know, it's about 400 parts per million. And I don't know if, uh, to be a greenhouse gas, you have to have molecules of three or more atoms. Uh, the atmosphere that we breathe, you know, is mostly is nitrogen and oxygen. Those are both molecules or only two atoms, and they are not greenhouse gases. So uh, CO2, it's got three atoms, that's a greenhouse gas. Water vapor, humidity in the air, H2O is a greenhouse gas. That exists on an average on the planet, it's about 10,000 parts per million as a greenhouse gas. And it's a more powerful one. It's what I call the molecular structure of that particular atom is different with three atoms as opposed to carbon dioxide. So it's a far more powerful greenhouse gas and it's 25 times more prevalent. Uh, so the greenhouse effect is due to water vapor. And so adding on more carbon dioxide just has a, a, a next goal. You know, here in, in Atlanta where I'm sitting right now, I have a swimming pool in my backyard. And I just swim all the time. And I keep telling people, if I wee-wee in my pool, it's going to raise the temperature of it. And if I wee-wee in my pool, it's going to raise the height of it. But it's negligible. And that's the kind of uh, comparison I would like to make on adding carbon dioxide to our atmosphere. It's, it's negligible compared to what's already there by Mother Nature, and that's the water vapor. Yeah, I think that's accurate, though. It's a little bit... Uh, I don't know if the visual of that is that great for people because it also it also implies a contamination, which people that's how people think of CO2 because Obama has gone I agree. This, this whole, this whole quest to mistake. call it a pollutant. Um, but, yeah, okay, wee-weeing is contamination. I agree. That's a bad thing for me. I should, I got, you, you hit the nail on the head on that one. Um, CO2, it's an airborne fertilizer. And I, that's where I think the uh, pro-energy movement really needs to hit this real hard. Uh, uh, people who own greenhouses know what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, the level of CO2 in the air is about 400 parts per million. And they seed the greenhouse atmosphere, make it get up to 1,000 parts per million. That makes their plants grow faster. They can make more money. And so this is an effect that's taking place on the planet. If we go back to about 1950, we had about 310 parts per million, and now we got 400. Our, our crop yields tripled during that time. Now, a lot of that's due to technology, but I think there's certainly uh, 15 or 20 percent of crop yields is due to the increase in CO2. Uh, we have satellites, you know, spinning around the Earth, collecting data, and one of them is greenery they're collecting. And there's areas of the planet that are green around the uh, Sahara Desert, in the south part of that, called the Sahel. Or so it's green now. It hadn't been green there for maybe thousands of years, and this is due to the increased CO2. That's where I think uh, your your buddies like EPA are trying to say the CO2 is a pollution, and we should put a price tag on it, a negative price tag. I say we should take CO2 and put a positive price tag on this thing. And there are people who have studied this. Or so, and they think uh, you know, the, the addition of CO2 to the planet in the last 50 years is worth like $10 trillion. What we're adding every year is worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And I have a negative price tag like the EPA puts on it. So, so with the, is, uh, with the with the you mentioned the desert turning into green, where can people see th those pictures? 
Okay, that's the fact you get uh, now. It's south of the Sahara Desert, uh, so it's not. Uh, it's it's uh, it'll be the border of there that uh, areas are now have plants growing there that weren't growing there you know 50 years ago, and they think it's because of that. You know, they had scrub brushes or something like that. Because I, you know, you live close to the desert out in California, so if you go across the Mojave, you see this junky stuff growing there, but it ain't green. You know, the funny weeds or whatever they have. That. So stuff can grow in desert areas, but it's just it's not uh, nutritious or, uh, you know, maybe pretty to look at. And so that'd be area there. And I think uh, S-A-H-E-L, I believe, you know, S-A-H-E-L, Sahel, is the name of that geographic area that would be south of the Sahara Desert. And I think if you plug that into just put that one word, into Google, they're going to come up with stuff there, and they will show this greenery, you know, taken by satellite pictures. All right. So I want to go back into your own chronology. So, and even back to nuclear, you mentioned that you had this rabid opposition that was completely irrational, and that we have basically stopped building nuclear power plants, stopped selling things. What happened within? You had mentioned this to me before the call, but I don't think I think listeners would be interested to know what happened to the to the study of nuclear engineering. Because imagine if we had a revival today, we'd want uh, we'd want generations of trained nuclear engineers who could expand the industry rapidly. But from what I, what I understand, it's dramatically declined in the universities. I, 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 I'm not talking as a real expert because I don't study this real careful. Um, I believe we have more nuclear engineers die today than we make new ones. So, uh, you know, our nuclear power industry goes back to the 50s in a way, because, uh, you know, we, we've had a nuclear-powered Navy since Hyman Rickover in the late 40s or early 50s. And so they, uh, a lot of the Rickover people got this uh, nuclear industry started in U.S. So the education part, as far as that, graduating nuclear engineers probably didn't start till the 1960 before we had any uh, meaningful number of people carrying a degree called nuclear engineering. Uh, prior to that time, it was physicists. I, I started out at the University of Virginia as a professor, an assistant prof, and then I went to Georgia Tech. I was the only engineer in both of those departments. All these people teaching nuclear engineering at both uh, the University of Virginia and at Georgia Tech had their doctor's degree in physics. And I had uh, you know, a little you know, private opinions about them, <laughs> too, which I guess is terrible to say. But you know, you, you got to think of dollar signs. And, and, that, and that, these people just didn't do Now today, the nuclear... Uh, explain, <laughs> explain, ex, explain that. I don't think anyone that's going to care anymore. What, well, I what, just, you know, I'd, I'd like to use the word contemplate navels or so, because <laughs> I think we need to do that. That's, but, you know, like when I was at Georgia Tech, I was involved on a, a NASA grant on a nuclear-powered rocket engine. And the other guys I'm working with were, had PhDs in physics. This is the dumbest thing I ever heard of. And uh, uh, you know, I had to rationalize out of it that, okay, they were paying a quarter of my salary, and they were paying the, uh, what I call stipends for half a dozen graduate students to get degrees and go out working something practical or so. But so much you know, federal money uh, was being wasted on campuses providing contract research for Uncle Sam, the federal government. Uh, you know, private industry wouldn't waste money on this thing. And so uh, I think the uh, physicists 
type thinking that was in the nuclear engineering programs, uh, these people would not let their contractors know they're doing something dumb. And I didn't say anything either. I kept my mouth shut. I'm talking now. I'm saying things to you. I've never said to anybody. I'll tell you that. Well, it's good to be breaking exclusive news, although I don't think anyone... Uh, <laughs> any I of don't them, know you any, shot over this. <laughs> yeah, that would be... That seems like that would be uh, an extreme reaction. So why was it that there yeah. were so many non... so few actual nuclear engineers in the department? Well, because I think they... Uh, uh, you know, sort of originate out of physics departments, uh, nuclear, power, uh, nuclear engineering, let's say, at the field of study. And so it started out, out of physics, became departments, so it's uh, staffed. And there wasn't anybody with a nuclear engineering degree available to be hired. Uh, I'm one of the few, uh, the first PhDs, I got a PhD in 64 or so, so I'm, I'm one of the, I doubt if there have been 100 in the United States up to that time, maybe only 50. Uh, today, we're probably putting out only 50. I think back in 1980, we were probably putting out two or 300 a year. And so uh, if the nuclear engineering or nuclear power gets revitalized and we start building new nuclear power plants, I think the enrollments will go back up again. Uh, and for students who study it, uh, their job opportunities are great because there's so few of them. Uh, people dying in the industry, I think, exceeds the new ones we're adding. So uh, we are probably going overseas and picking up nuclear engineers uh, from foreign countries to make up for the shortfall in the United States. And this sort of applies to all engineering in a way. I, I, that sort of disappoints me as a country. Uh, we only graduate maybe um, 50,000 engineers a year in the United States. Uh, India or China, a quarter million a year or so. Um, and, you know, here we're the technology leader in the world or so and, and cannot provide them sufficient numbers to work in engineering or study engineering. Kids are afraid of it. I think they think it's too hard. Uh, the job opportunities are unbelievable. I, you know, I'm just dumbfounded. You know, the, uh, I'm a you know, BS in chemical engineering. and I uh, had the best job offer of my class in 1958. Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, Ohio, offered me $510 a month. <laughs> it's 6000 a year. And a kid starting today in chemical engineering getting $115,000 a year. I never made anywhere near that kind of money any time in my life. <laughs> so so you, you can go back into the workforce. Oh, me? Oh, I'm retired. No, I wouldn't work. For, uh, there's no way we'll work for money. I don't like the way our government spends it. I don't want to make money. I don't want to pay taxes. So if you don't make money, uh, you don't have to worry about <laughs> paying taxes. Yeah, I, I, I guess not. So if, if we take that, okay, so you you lived through and were an observer to the assault on nuclear and, and the decline in yeah. nuclear. When did you start observing the attack on fossil fuels, in particular based on CO2 emissions? Well, I think the uh, historically uh, it was 1988, Al Gore, uh, U.S. Senator, and Tim Worth was a U.S. senator from uh, Colorado. And this guy named Hansen uh, had gotten his Ph.D., I think maybe Penn State, but I'm not sure on that. But uh, he had done the computer studies on the, uh, global warming uh, being caused by CO2. And so he's worked for NASA. And uh, so he, uh, I guess, went to them and uh, decided we'll have a, a Senate hearing in the summer. It's June 1988. 
And they went into the office building wherever the meeting was going to be. They disabled the air conditioning to that meeting room, opened the windows, and it was like 100 degrees outside. So they're hearing being held in a room where everybody's taking their clothes off because they're sweating so bad. And that CO2 in the atmosphere is causing global warming. So that was, uh, you know, aroused some interest in this thing. And uh, so I started building up. Uh, I don't think uh, the Bush administration, that'd be Bush Sr., had much to do with uh, but Clinton, with uh, Al Gore, you know, his vice president, uh, did a lot and tried to, uh, you know, get stuff rolling in this direction. So uh, I, now this is a speculation on my part, but in the eight years uh, Gore and France, let's say, were in office, I think they were able to seed EPA, energy, interior, agriculture, all these agencies with people of their thinking. And they were low level at that time, and now they're senior level today. And so, you know, this it's, it's money and power off of that, and uh, uh, the motivation, of uh, the consequences of their activities are so horrible. Uh, you know, I can't believe people be that cruel. So I don't think they know what they're doing uh, on that thing. Because I, I mean, you don't want anybody starved to death, do you? I mean, uh, what kind of person would want that? And you know, I know you wrote the book on the moral case for fossil fuels, and that for sure is a moral case. The more fossil fuels use we have, we're going to save millions of lives. You know, people starve to death in Africa and Asia, or so uh, people down here we don't we don't see that. Uh, Africa, old seventy percent of people don't have access to electricity. Uh, can you imagine doing without electricity? Uh, you, you'd be helpless. I don't know. I thought about this, which I don't know if you even heard about. Uh, the, the National Society of Professional Engineers, uh, you know, probably in 2001, came out. What is the greatest scientific accomplishment for the United States in the whole 20th century? They came out with an electrical grid for the United States. So the greatest accomplishment of the century. Okay, what fed that electrical grid? It was coal during that time. And I, I keep telling people that... Uh, if you go back to 1900, uh, lifespan was probably maybe 42 years. If you go back to the year 2000, it's up over 70 years. So we've got maybe a 30-year increase in lifespan. I'm going to lay this with electricity and coal or so. We came out with open-heart surgery and re or no, well, heart transplants. You know, so I can save somebody's life, let's say, putting a new heart in. I would say that heart transplants added, added one second to lifespan, where electricity is, you know, it's tens of years, because you, know, you just don't think about it, but refrigeration, it keeps you from eating rotten food and killing yourself. Uh, air conditioning, I've lived down the south, this place is uninhabitable. Now, now I live without air conditioning, you're too young, probably ever even slept without air. I'm from central Illinois, and I remember as a little kid, I had this rotating or oscillating fan, you know, and I'd lay in bed, stark naked on top of a sheet, not anything on me, and this little fan going back and forth, and, and the bed was just wet, wet with sweat in the morning, or so, and I, I survived this stuff, but it was sure was miserable, or so, and air conditioning didn't become prevalent in this country until my parents didn't get air conditioning, I think, until 59, and so, uh, but now everybody, even our poor, I think, have air conditioning today, and everybody has access to refrigeration. So these are, you know, items that sound sort of simple. We don't think about them, but they're life-saving. And uh, conveniences, uh, uh, 
washing machines, you, you, that, that, there was a time we didn't have dryers. You, you don't know that. I lived through that. We hung clothes outside. <laughs> so this is funny as hell. When I'm a little kid. Uh, we, uh, the washing machine was just an agitator. And they had this thing. I, I turned the handle, a crank, to, for the rollers so my mother would feed clothes through that. And, you know, do a, a laundry. We started at 7 in the morning went to 7 at night. And, and now the stuff you, you, you know, put in the washing machine, take it out, and you spend maybe 30 minutes doing a lot of laundry. And you can read a book or watch TV, but most of the time well, this, this equipment's running. So it's unbelievable uh, improvements. On, and we got it here in the USA. Oh, well, well, you know, that's why it was American grid is uh, most outstanding because we have the greatest electrical system in the world. And uh, and that it's, it's it's driven by fossil fuels. If you go back 1950, that's coal. Well, hydroelectric maybe six percent, eight percent coal. Essentially, the rest of it. And then uh, we've been you know we're squeezing out coal, which I think is a big mistake. And that's another point. I guess I, I'd say I've witnessed that most people have not seen. In my little hometown, that's Pekin, Illinois, which you probably never heard of. There was a huge power plant outside about three miles from our, our house that fed electricity to Chicago. And it was, it was a 1,000 megawatts, probably one of the largest power plants in the United States at that time. It had a smokestack on it at least 500 foot tall. We had no environmental controls in those days. If the wind changed directions, my mother you know, had all these clotheslines outside. Wind changed direction. All their laundry is black. Come in and do it over again. Uh, my dad was a prominent lawyer in central Illinois. You'd think he had written a letter to Commonwealth Edison and complained. He didn't do anything. We just did the laundry over again. Or so, and this is back in the 40s, well, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, another thing, too, uh, where I'm up in Illinois, uh, we, we heated with coal. Almost everybody in my town heated with coal. My next door neighbor cooked with coal. Uh, we get a nice snowstorm come in. And, you know, snow stops, this ground is nice and white, pretty like your white Christmas. The next morning it's black. Uh, have, have you seen that? Uh, you, I don't think, because that doesn't exist anymore. We can clean up our generation. Uh, you know, that's soot. That's what irritates the Dickens out of me with our president and the EPA. They call carbon dioxide carbon pollution. Well, carbon pollution, to me, it's soot. And I witnessed it. And I breathed that. Or so, and I'm still alive today. So this stuff, yeah, it's bad, uh, but it ain't that bad. Or so, and, and we can clean up. Our power generation is clean. You know, we got baggers, you know, mercury, and you name it, uh, sulfur dioxide, all the stuff we get out. So the uh, pollution, supposedly, from burning fossil fuels is highly controlled and prevents, we have no threat to the health. EPA comes out with all that junk about asthma and I don't know if you're aware of what happened. Uh, as soon as uh, Obama got elected, it's like uh, March, I think, 2009, one of the EPA uh, thinkers in there wrote a letter to the head. That was uh, Lisa Jackson was the head of EPA at that time. It said, uh, you know, uh, global warming, everybody thinks of polar bears drowning. we got to stop that because people don't have polar bears. Uh, we need to have them think about their kids can't breathe. and Let's hit use asthma. And so they uh, change all, all the all dangers of burning fossil fuels causes asthma. There's all kinds of scientific data shows asthma is caused by dung from cockroaches, dirty houses, uh, uh, stuff from power plants that has no effect upon asthma.
Anyway, I've, I've got to talk too much. I, so I want to get to the to your experience, more of your experience with the anti-fossil fuel movement. When, what was your own journey in terms of discovering that the uh, impact of CO two on the global climate system is negligible, and then how did different colleagues react when you pointed this out to them? Well, okay. Uh, start with I was retired. When I started in this thing about 1995, 98, 99, all information is on the internet. If you got a computer, which everybody has, I just spend, yeah, just Google stuff on, uh, uh, you know, talk about global warming or sea level rise, all the stuff. You can get data. So I went into the data, and that's available, and I say readily available on the internet. Uh, there's lots of temperature data that we have that goes back hundreds of thousands of years in the past. And also we are able to, you know, I'd say at least make a good guess at what the carbon dioxide levels were in the past at the same time. And that's the first thing I think I seized upon was that we had temperatures and carbon dioxide going back, you know, four or 500,000 years in the past. Temperatures would rise. And then carbon dioxide arrived maybe 100 to 400 years later. So this tells me carbon dioxide is affected by temperature rise. It doesn't affect temperature rise. And this is you know, past information that's readily available. Uh, next thing, let's come back to uh, more current times, let's say you know, like 1,000 years before Christ up to today. Uh, we got a lot of data that shows that our t temperatures on the planet go in cycles of about 500 years. We got a warming cycle followed by a cooling cycle. And this goes back at least, you know, three or 4,000 years. And we're in a, a warming cycle right now. It's called the current warming period. It started about 1850. Uh, you know, they're just uh, putting no on boundaries on it. Uh, prior to the current warming period we have now, it's called the Little Ice Age. So that goes backwards from like 1850 back to 1350. Now, people who have studied history, times are damn miserable back in the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. You know, Napoleon lost an army over cold weather. Uh, and, you know, just a, a, a Valley Forge, you know, Washington had a hell of a problem. Uh, people could walk across the uh, Hudson River from New Jersey to New York back in the 1800s. Uh, in England, the Penance River, they used to have festivals on it during that time. So it's cold and miserable and a lot of death uh, dying during that time. If you go back from 1350 and go backwards again to about 900 or so, it's called the medieval warming period. And uh, I, the, the Renaissance started during that time. That's why the Catholic Church is building these magnificent cathedrals. So times were you know, as prosperous as they've probably ever been up to that period of history uh, for the world from 900 to 1350 uh, because of, of warming. And then if you go back further from 900 to maybe 400, that's called the Dark Ages. Uh, the Roman Empire fell about 400. Times were miserable, you know, disease and death took place until they got up to the medieval warming period. And if I go back from 400, let's say maybe 100 years before Christ, that's called the Roman warming period. 
So, you know, the history shows us all these cycles up and down, cold, warm, uh, warm, nice life, uh, cold, death or so. Okay, carbon dioxide stayed about the same, around 280 parts per million during this entire period. So this tells you something. Mother Nature makes climate goes up and down in cycles. And then there are bigger cycles, you know, maybe 100,000 years. I don't know if people are aware that the orbit, our planet, goes around the sun and changes with time. And that's how you get these massive uh, ice ages where come a big block of ice for the planet, and it's going to be real miserable. We're going to go into one of them. You have 3,000 years in the future. It's inevitable it's going to happen. And so all these uh, past historical things tell us that carbon dioxide has a negative effect on climate. It's, 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 it's natural events that cause this. And uh, I think our past experience tells us uh, massive volcano eruptions cause uh, climate change. I think it was uh, 1813, I forgot the name, but there was a big eruption out in the uh, area of Indonesia or so, and it causes uh, soot, if you want, or dust. To be in the upper atmosphere around the world. Uh, 1815 in, in the United States, we didn't have a summer. And then I believe it was in Geneva, Switzerland in 1815, a couple of these authors uh, you know, spent the summer in Geneva, and it was miserable and cold, and uh, a lady wrote the book about Frankenstein. Or so uh, so you know, these are all you know, natural things that you know, have occurred. That, um, so this, 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 this evidence then, so you know, this, this evidence is, I'd say, if you, if you search for it, is, is pretty easy to it's come by. It's overwhelming. So, so, then, yeah. so then the question is, what, uh, in terms of your own situation, how did you see your peers respond to this evidence? Because particularly if you're now, okay, peers, now the people I socialize with are pretty much the people think the same way I do. Well, what about the what? So, but you've been in the university system, and well, been well okay, so I've been out of university since then. Now, okay, but let's go back. If I was still associated with Georgia Tech, we would not be talking. I know you had Judith Curry in your program a couple of weeks ago, I believe. That's right. And uh, she's got stuff I don't have, courage, to fight this thing. I, I, I don't know the exact figure. You know, George Texas, it's got to be at least three or $400 million a year. Uh, they get research grants from the federal government. The federal government, you know, they, they have the research money. And what's available for all the universities in the country, we're talking about you know, $30, $40 dollars. So it's big bucks. And uh, when I go out, I'm a retired professor of nuclear engineering. I don't say Georgia Tech because I don't want to embarrass the school. I don't want to cost them money. And I, I, I don't think they, you know, top, uh, you know, the president of the school there, he's signed on to the global warming stuff there. The, the school, the attitudes are told there's... Wait, wait, well, why shouldn't he be? I mean, how is it going to change if we don't hold the universities accountable or say, hey, look, here's somebody who was judged as highly competent by this university and he disagrees with the stance they're taking because a lot of how they a lot of what they trade on is unanimity saying well everyone who's informed well agrees. that's just a bunch of baloney uh, well but how are how are people going to know if you don't mention it yeah uh, you know just as, as a sort of an observer off the side um, i think we're talking about you know maybe a couple hundred or more 
people who are rabid anti-energy people. Uh, but they can make a lot of noise, and then we have thousands like my, well, I, I make noise to try to, but too many inert people uh, won't say anything. On the why, university why level, not? the younger ones, the salaries is controlled by the upper administration. The upper administration cooperates with the federal government because their money comes in. I'm an MIT grad. Uh, I got a letter from the president of MIT about a week ago about they had signed on to this global warming thing. And MIT, you know, they, they have a lot of professors who are uh, quoted uh, uh, on, and, and not necessarily, I don't know if any of them are in engineering, but you know, ec- economics and um, you know, now they have environmental degrees or so and stuff like that. Um, and asked for uh, alumni to send in some, uh, they're going to have a contest uh, for ways to cut their carbon footprint down. And the president asked me for that. Well, I sent a letter back immediately to them, which told them that the things I told you to, our past history shows the carbon dioxide. They don't have anything going for them on this area here. And I, I said, John, he's going to get a black eye off of this thing. This thing's going to fall apart. You know, 20 years, maybe next year or something. But it's going to fall apart because it's not true. And they're going to be embarrassed, uh, you know, doing this thing. And MIT is probably one of the most highly respected uh, countries in the world on science, and and yet embrace, you know, and, and ruin, uh, put their reputation that's, uh, you know, up on this thing where they're officially uh, supporting President Obama. I don't know if uh, you're aware. I just found this. Uh, it was on what they call a executive order. From President Obama, it was October 5th, 2009. It's called Federal Leadership in Environmental, Energy, and Economic Performance. It's a 15 page report with 20 sections to it, and I read it, and it was stunning. It told all federal agencies to obey President Obama. And I, I wrote a paper, it's, it's, it's up for, uh, you know, the Harvard Institute probably. Posted tomorrow, and uh, Robert Bradley with a master resource. I think he may post it tomorrow. It's called President Obama demands agreement with climate policies, and this discusses this pay, uh, executive order and the consequences. Immediately, all federal employees, you either agree with me or go somewhere else. And so that's why we're getting all this dumb junk coming out of federal agencies, Department of Defense. You know, uh, that's why I get all these news releases. This has been going on for you know half a dozen years from about six different agencies. It's probably six or seven hundred a year. Uh, EPA's least two or three a week, and almost every one of these press releases is waste of our tax dollars. It's it's in the hundred billion or more a year, or so. And that's where you know I wish the Republican Party would latch onto this thing because. Uh, Spending money uselessly is not good for the economy, uh, and we got uh, you know all these subsidies for solar, wind, electric cars, uh, uh, renewable fuels. As a you know, chemical engineer, I have a lot of reservations about them. Uh, ethanol from corn is a disaster. I don't, I don't know if the public is even aware of this thing. Or so, uh, it takes more energy to make it 
that in it, and it accomplishes nothing. Uh, we're we're uh, producing five billion gallons of ethanol per year that's stuck in your car. It makes your car perform more poorly. Uh, ethanol causes ozone to increase. So uh, EPA is pushing that ethanol thing, and this, but I think it's a weird. Uh, EPA is uh, trying to get a ruling on decreasing at ozone. At the same time, they're face are trying possibly to increase the use of more ethanol, which makes more ozone. And uh, you know, this, you know, I'm sitting here just shaking my head. What are we smoking in this country here? <laughs> what are these people smoking? You know, a hundred years from now, historians are going to look back on our times and just—it's a, a worldwide insanity is taking place. It's unparalleled. Nothing like this has ever happened before. But we got the communication. You know, I think you know with the computers and all the other stuff, and so everybody can communicate with each other. And so if one guy goes crazy, he can you know get a lot of sympathizers. So speaking of sympathizing, the last question is, how can we get the engineering profession more involved? You've seen some engineers like Bert Rattan of Spaceship One, who's been very public about this, but I think the engineering community uh, could be invaluable both in helping people understand the, the facts behind the economics and also the fallacies behind all the, the false models and simulations that would never pass engineering musters. So what can we do to get that profession more engaged? I, I went to the National, or you know, here in Atlanta, the Georgia Society of Professional Engineers and volunteered to give talks on what we know about climate science. This was about six years ago. Uh, when I went to their main office, uh, the guy who was not an engineer, but was their office director, was uh, I don't know what his degree was. Well, I don't think we're interested in that because I believe global warming is. So anyway, I, I went to one of their meetings and also uh, offered and uh, I got no response. So uh, the little activity I did pull uh, accomplished nothing uh, from my point of view. Uh, and once again, it's that executive order. Uh, I, I, I may be wrong on this thing, but the, you know, the, uh, the federal government's the biggest company in the world. And they control so much money, and everybody's afraid to go against them. Uh, I, I think the thing, uh, you know, nature is going to make this fall apart. We're, we're going to have that meeting, you know, four weeks from today, starting in Paris, and stuff. We're going to have some miserable snowfall up there. I think uh, one thing that I don't know if you remember, but in 2009 they had that meeting in Copenhagen. Yeah, I did. It got super cold then. Well, another thing came out about uh, that, that. I think it was the 19th of November, Climate Gate. They called that about a thousand emails between various scientists. We're only talking about maybe 15 in the U.S. and, and Great Britain. Uh, how they fudged data came out, and that uh, really put a hole in the uh, scientific argument. You know, Copenhagen pretty well almost ended up in a disaster. And uh, from my reading, I believe. Uh, President Obama with Hillary Clinton went to the meeting and tried to uh, and succeeded finally get into a meeting with the Chinese and uh, I think Brazil and South Africa or so they were trying to get this thing stopped and Hillary Clinton from my understanding came up with this idea of a climate fund that uh, United States and a couple of wealthy countries will uh, contribute 100 billion a year uh, and give it to the 
undeveloped countries like Brazil and Russia and, uh, and China to get them to cooperate with this uh, a global warming scheme or so. And that's going to be a big thing coming up. Uh, it's, it's not going to happen. Uh, India has already asked, they want $2.4 trillion to implement renewable energy. And they're, not, they're, they're going to go ahead and build all the coal plants they want or, and need or give, or give us $2.4 trillion. Well, if you take all of the countries of the world, there isn't that much money around. So this, I think this thing's a class because of the poor countries are expecting us to give them unbelievable amounts of money to satisfy what their demands are to get their people out of poverty. That amount of money doesn't exist because it's too expensive. Fossil fuels is cheap. Uh, you can get, uh, you know, that's what I think is so tragic. Uh, you know, like uh, Africa as a nation, they got coal, oil, and natural gas in huge quantities. They've never succeeded in developing them. The United States has these materials in huge quantities, but we got the most innovative population of any country in the world. Almost every invention that came out since 1900 originated in the U.S. And so uh, we are able, we got the fossil fuel natural resources, and we know how to exploit them. Uh, we got a government in Washington, D.C. trying to stop exploiting them. Uh, one thing that just makes me mad in hell is in Alaska, up at the top of there is this area called the Arctic National Wildlife Reserve. It's got tens of billions of oil that's available to be drilled in conventional drilling and on an area just a you know, few square miles or so, and they can, uh, Stand that down here real cheap, or so through that pipeline. And the federal government, they control most of the land in Alaska, and they won't allow fossil fuel development up there. And another thing, too, I guess your, your government, uh, there's an area uh, in Alaska that's got huge amounts of chromium and I think a bunch of valuable minerals, and, and they won't allow them to mine. So uh, logging, mining, and drilling, uh, you know, three Areas that make things and make money are being thwarted by this government of Washington, D.C., and it, uh, it just escapes me. Or so uh, we could have full employment here if we exploit our assets. And I'm not, you know, much a religious person. As I remember, a little kid, I, they, I'll talk about talents in the Bible. I, I'm thinking maybe that same thing, you know, me having a talent to drill a oil well or something, but. Uh, you know, exploit your talents, and I think the Bible commanded that, or so. And we're just doing the opposite. W one thing I guess I tr also try to tell people: uh, Yeah, coal's let's say it's fifty dollars a ton, and so six hundred tons of coal is worth thirty thousand bucks. That's just as important as making a loss or Volkswagen car that sells for thirty thousand bucks. Or, you know, I can generate natural gas. It's 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 a, it's producing something that people want to buy. So whether it's a it's a car, or lipstick, or coal, oil, or natural gas, it's all producing something people want to buy. And we got that fossil fuels that people want, and we can supply the world. Definitely, so, you know, definitely. Well, you hit a nail on the head on this thing. Yeah, so I think I think one of the big things is just for everyone to get involved in as I've as I've stressed throughout this this interview, I think it's important yeah. for more engineers like you uh to get involved because a lot of I think a lot of what allows the antis to succeed 
is the perception that that science and logic and and scientists and the more obviously logical professions like engineering uh, are on their side. So I want to thank you for your work and and let's ask just to close. Where can people learn more uh, from you? Where are your articles published? Well, okay, uh, I'm on the Heartland Institute website, so that's why I'm. Uh, see, I sit at home, and I guess what I tell people I live inside a computer. I'm <laughs> on the computer ten hours a day, three sixty-five. I'm collecting data from all the world, so I write papers. I come out with one, uh, you know, about every ten days or so, uh, and I, you know, I spend a hell of a lot of time on this thing. So I, I don't even go out hardly at all, uh, except you know, to buy groceries and. So I'm I'm not sociable. Well, you know, you can do that on the computer too. Yeah, I I, I send okay. I have to email. I've uh, Nikki Norcio, your compatriot, or so. I'm she's on my list. I'll be sending papers to her, or so. And uh, and so I you know, I'll send them out to people, and uh, it's communication, and uh, and I'm not good at that. I guess I'll, I'll write. I'll give you the stuff. It's people like you, uh, getting the word out. And we we need you know I guess people like me to send stuff to you and let you get the word out get communicators because that's that's what we're lacking. Uh, just an example on the uh, oh clean power plan which is in now. I'm a member of the Sierra Club, and I'm also a member of, uh, called Interface Power and Light, which originated in your state or well, headquarters in your state or so on. So I'm on their mailing list, and uh, this is like two years ago. Uh, they begged us to uh, write letters to support EPA's clean power plan. And all I had to do was press a button uh, on my computer. You know, I could, in 10 seconds, I could send letters to EPA. Uh, so uh, they generated 2 million emails to EPA to support their program. Of course, EPA pays them money to do this. Uh, so, but that's, that's that confuses Congress. And they'll, and they'll send letters to the congressmen. They, in huge volumes uh, because of the environmental movement. Uh, you know, there's maybe two million people in the entire movement in the United States, but they're, uh, you know, they don't you know, spend maybe an hour a year, but they can do a lot of damage with this by you know, pressing a button on the computer, sending letters out there pre-written for them. And yet I don't know, I don't get anything sent to me uh, very rarely to do on a pro-energy basis. So here we got millions thinking like me who sit around and do nothing or don't know how. And so the communication is our big problem for uh, sure. All right. Well, we'll keep you on our list. We're we're working on that. For okay. Late, yeah. Anytime. Uh, get back to me. I'm, I'm I'm at your service. All right. Well, I appreciate that, Jim, and, and thanks so much for being on the show. Fine. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks again to Dr. Rust for being on the program. A bunch of things struck me in the interview, but none more than the comment that if he were still in academia, he would not be on this show. The opinions that he's expressing, the observations that he has, the analysis that he has as a high-level engineer, those would not be things that he would be comfortable making public. I think that speaks for itself in terms of the state of affairs of science, engineering, academia, ideas. And this is exactly what is constantly being suppressed with these sort with these consensus claims such as 97% of scientists agree. And it's an intimidation to anybody who might 
speak up and it's an attempt to discredit before a hearing anyone who might speak up. So just remember that, and, and this harkens back to Dr. Judith Curry, who was on the show, is also from Georgia Tech, and she had she had the courage to come on the show, but more broadly, she's had the courage to to speak out a lot, and she's gotten a lot of negative feedback for it. And people who say would say positive things about her now won't, or they'll now say negative things about her. So this is not a healthy climate. And I think it's important to make observations like this because often we don't. It can be hard to know the exact state of um, of an issue, a complex scientific issue, and there's a lot of he said, he said type stuff. So one thing when I'm trying to get to the bottom of things that I look for is what is the intellectual conduct of the people on each side? So if if another perspective is if this side were right, so if the catastrophist side were right, how would they conduct themselves? And in, I think it's chapter five of the book, chapter four or chapter five of Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, I discuss, I discuss what it would be like if they were actually right, how would you conduct yourself? And, and I illustrated in many ways that the way they conduct themselves has nothing to do with how you would conduct yourself, whether it's how they intimidate people or how they oppose nuclear and hydro. It just has none, no indication of a sincere quest for scientific knowledge in the service of improving human life. And that is, that is a, a very strong indication, at least, that there is something corrupt and that the, the claim to science is very, very dubious. And then once you get into it, you, you usually see that that is borne out, and I think it is in this case. So I hope that Dr. Rust's experience is memorable for you, and we've had a couple of scientists on the show who've had the same type of experience, and remember that when you talk to different people and they say things like 97% of scientists and recognize that it, we're in a really oppressive intellectual climate. So that is a, a necessary, albeit negative, note to end on, but more positively, we're making progress every day, and you can help. Uh, just make sure that you're on all of our lists, whether it's Facebook or Twitter. You can be on the Alex Epstein page, I Love Fossil Fuels, I Love Nuclear, or Center for Industrial Progress. Also, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Uh, one thing that I haven't mentioned in the past but would be nice is if you want to go to iTunes and give a review. Now, people are always saying only give a five-star review, but give whatever review you want, although you know, I hope you like the show. Uh, but that, you know, that's very helpful. I think that helps, that helps publicize the show. There are a couple of other shows named power hour. I don't know if there's a, a drinking game or something like that, but there's, there's other power hours. So maybe this can put us above the other power hours or put us near the top of the energy shows list. So, uh, do that. And above all, make sure that you are signed up for the newsletter at industrialprogress.com because that will ensure that you're kept up with everything on a regular basis. All right. That is it for this week. Next week, we will be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.